With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mobile phone companies say they offer home internet. But if their internet comes from a cell phone network, you should know. It's just phone internet, not home internet. Keep your home up to speed with Cox. Cox internet is faster and has more reliable download speeds than 5G home internet. Cox is the real home internet you're looking for. Based on Cox analysis of UCLA speed test intelligence data, Q3 2022 and Cox serviceable areas, visit cox.com internet for details. From the era that brought you names like Chamberlain, Russell, and West. The Chamberlain, he's got it! Jerry West made it from the other side of the midcourt strike! To the glory days of Magic and Kareem. And Magic Johnson is out there celebrating! Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is on the brink of an NBA all-time record. From a time where last-second shots were expected. Here comes Kobe. From way outside. Got it! Oh, man! Gets it to LeBron. For three for the win! Yes! And rings were handed out like candy. Here's Troy. Yes! It was all over. It's Duncan Dynasty with your host, Garrett Bougay, and it starts right now. Welcome to another episode of Duncan Dynasty. Alongside my co-host and fellow SBC alum, Corbin Ford, I am Garrett Bouguet. And on this week's episode, we're going to uh, be breaking down another classic series for you. Uh, we, of course, uh, don't have uh, as long of an off-season as, uh, as, as many anticipated, so we might not be able to get to too many of these, but uh, Corbin and I thought it would be a fun week to, to just go back and watch some classic hoops and uh, that we did, and we, we ended up deciding on watching the 2006 Western Conference Finals between the San Antonio Spurs and the Dallas Mavericks. And Corbin, I mean, first off, you can't really talk about this series without uh, bringing up the two stars, and, and it's really great because they both essentially play the same position, the power forward position. You've got Tim Duncan on one side and Dirk Nowitzki on the other, and they dominate the game in completely different fashions. Oh, yes. I mean, Dirk was just a maestro from the outside. I mean, obviously he had, you know, his incredible post one leg fadeaway, but just a tremendous shooter, stretching the floor from deep two, from three, all over, just a tremendous shot maker where Duncan was a lot more of a low-post powerhouse, kind of getting the ball. Mr. Fundamental, as they say, you know, a couple of moves, all very effective, but really doing his damage on the interior. And so that juxtaposition of, of skill sets from the same position, both at the mastery, you know, of, of, of their unique skill set, was incredible to see, especially in real time, you know, how one went to work on one end and the other did his business on the other. Yeah, and, and both of these guys... Actually, sorry, in in, uh, in in the 05-06 season, Dirk Nowitzki made the All-NBA first team, and, and Tim Duncan ended up being on the second team, but still two of arguably the top five players in the league at that point. 
Um, Duncan, you know, winning MVP back in, in 2002 and 2003, win, the winner of, of three championships in, in 1999, 03, and 05. So obviously he's got this stellar resume already at, at this stage. And Dirk Nowitzki, you know, has, has had some moments. Of course, he made the conference finals with the Mavs in 2003 alongside Steve Nash and, uh, you know, making this this all-NBA team this season, and then the following year, of course, winning the regular season MVP. So, you know, you talk about uh, how fun of a matchup this is in general, but then when you get both of the guys near the peaks of their power, it just makes it all the more special. It does. And like you said, both of them, it's square in their prime pretty much, especially for these two players who had such tremendous longevity that they were still playing at a high level 10 years after this, which is crazy to think about, you know, as they've been in the league for almost a decade at this point already. And, yeah, I, back and forth throughout the entire series, uh, the game we're about to discuss in depth throughout that game as well, they both were able to impact the game in their own way, and, and, and the cross matches and switches that they were on, because they weren't really on each other for a tremendous amount that I was able to, to really uh, remember, but you could see them just kind of... Do their thing. It was it was really really fun to kind of watch this and and go back because I can speak for myself, but like maybe because of watching so much of Tim Duncan and, and Dirk, you know, the last like six seven years of their career, I remember a lot of like the 2012 to 2018 2020 stuff, which is you know they were still very good uh, players, very effective, uh, not exactly um, at their highest peak. You know, Duncan would win a championship again in 2014, and then obviously Dirk won one in 2011. But, like, their better days had already passed. They were more in the line of what we are watching or what we watched recently. So it was interesting to see them, okay, no, Duncan will get the ball on the block every other play. You know, Greg was skewed from the sidelines, you know, a mismatch. It's like, what are you doing? And then Dirk bringing the ball and initiating the offense at times. It was very jarring to see that. Um, it was just a really, like you said, it was a really fun look back. I love doing these, as you know. Yeah, and, and you, you brought it up that uh, really they, despite – essentially playing the same position. Uh, they, they didn't end up guarding each other for most of the series. And, you know, part of that was that because of that unique challenge that, that Dallas uh, provided, and in 2006, playing a power forward that can shoot like Dirk Nowitzki was kind of rare. Most teams were, were still playing that traditional power forward. And, and even San Antonio, for most of the year, played Nazi Muhammad and, and uh, Rasha Nesterovich at the center position and play Duncan at the four, but the, that unique challenge, that spacing challenge and, and defending four shooters that, that Dallas presented uh, really forced Greg Popovich in the Spurs' hands, and, and they had to play Duncan at the five and, and kind of go small. And, and so, yeah, for both teams, you know, obviously Avery Johnson, the coach of the Mavericks, he didn't want to put Dirk on, on Duncan because he didn't want his star player to get into foul trouble. And then on the other end, you know, Popovich didn't want Duncan guarding Dirk because he wants uh, Timmy under the hoop protecting the rim. And, of course, Dirk is this this great shooter. So it, it is fascinating that, yeah, despite essentially playing the same position, yeah, we, we rarely saw them against each other. Uh, but, uh, you know, looking at these two guys, they both performed unbelievably well. For the series, Dirk averaged 27.1 points per game. 13.3 rebounds, 2.7 assists, 11.3 free throw attempts a game, 65.4% true shooting on 25.5% usage. And then Tim Duncan, 32.3 points per game, 11.7 rebounds, 3.7 assists, 
two and a half blocks, 12.9 free throw attempts, 61.5% true shooting on 34.6% usage. But, uh, you know, Corbin, would you would you say after watching a decent chunk of this series, would you say either of them had the upper hand? Would you say it was basically a draw? You know, how did you... Uh, uh, how did you sort of interpret the two stars and, and their impact on the game? So I'm tempted to go with Dirk, since obviously, you know, at the end I thought that that team played uh, to bring that Dirk had his moments. But honestly, Duncan wore me down. I kind of, I, and, and, and I say that not to hit Duncan wins. I'm, I'm going to go for a draw just to give you the answer there, Garrett. But like, <laughs> both had their moments. You know, at first I'm looking at Dirk and I'm like, wow, he is just unstoppable. You know, whether it's, Bowen, whether it's a mismatch and, and Manu's on him, you know, whether he's able to take Duncan out farther than Duncan would like to be on the floor and just shoot over him like he was going to work. But then at the same time, Duncan just kind of wore you down. You know, I see a, a drop step here, a post hook here, and the next thing you know, he has like 20 and 15. I'm like, whoa. So I think that they both had a draw between them. Both were at the peak of uh, their powers and, and played well. And I think, honestly, the supporting cast is kind of what helped uh, separate the two teams, at least in this matchup. So uh, I'm going to give it a tie. Yeah, I, I would say it was is pretty much a draw as well. And, and given the fact that the series went to overtime in Game Seven, you know the teams were essentially a draw as well. Uh, but uh, you know, you you brought up the idea that our most recent memory of, of these two players was you know at, at the latter stages of their career where they had lost some athleticism and and really for Duncan, I think the biggest loss compared to his prime was just the, the post play you know he really in this series and and in those couple of MVP seasons he was a incredibly dominant post player I mean despite the fact that Dallas had plenty of seven footers to throw at Duncan it just seemed like none of them had any answers and then for Dirk you know a lot of it comes down to his rebounding you know as he got older he became a pretty like marginal you know below average rebounder for his position but at this time, he was still a pretty decent athlete. You know, he, he couldn't move laterally that well for his entire career. But just in terms of getting up off the ground, um, you know, putting in those effort plays and, and getting on the glass, he was uh, he was a much different player at this stage. Yeah, he, he really was. Uh, both, like you said, both of them specifically. And i got to agree with you on specifically Duncan in terms of post play because Every time I think about Duncan in the post, I flash back to that 2014 um, NBA Finals against the Heat, and I think it was Duncan on Haslam, I want to say. Or maybe I'm getting mixed up. It was the 2014 Western Conference Finals against uh, Kendrick Perkins. It was probably both, honestly. But anyway, point being, um, Duncan went to work a couple of times in the post, and they were making a big deal about, oh, my God, classic Tim Duncan. You know, like he's throwing back the clock. You know, the stuff that you always say for old guys who are, you know, doing stuff they used to do regularly and I looked back and I'm sitting there going okay I see that now not that I didn't see it before you know watching some 99 Spurs and stuff like that but like how dominant he was and also you know for someone who wasn't athletic in Dirk Nowitzki just how much more let's say the word nimble he was because he was bringing the ball before and yeah he wasn't an initiator wasn't like that it was really just kind of you know releasing pressure for the Mavericks in that way and you know usually dumping it down to a guard like Stackhouse who's posting up but the point being that Dirk was even doing that you know what I mean and and and, and taking a lot more of those off-the-dribble kind of mid-range jumpers, which at his height over his head the way he did, it wasn't like the more robotic, you know, turn-on fade ways that he would do later in his career as more of a spot three-point shooter, even though he's still devastating at that that early. But you can almost see, like, a slight difference in how he played from then 
to the 2011 finals that they won till later in his career. Like the kind of slight change, ever so slight change of progression in his career in terms of how he played, how he adjusted, you know, with the changes in his body. Absolutely. Yeah, for, you know, going back to, to Duncan, you know, you, you brought up, I think it was the 2013 finals, that first half of game six. I think he put up 25 <laughs> points in the first half and then. He had that really good series in 2015, the first round that they ended up losing to the Clippers, but he he was able to score pretty consistently over over DeAndre Jordan. I think that was really the last great Tim Duncan performance we got. Um, but uh, yeah, there were flashes, but yeah, just not consistent. Whereas in this series, he's just a constant uh, pain in the ass for for the Dallas Mavericks to defend him, constantly drawing fouls. And uh, you know the the thing that I I was uh, curious to get your take on is you know of course this season um, and and I think the year prior to this was the year where they they instituted the 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 um, the hand check call and the, the that rule change which freed up perimeter players to drive more without impeding their movement and uh, you know we we saw a ton of fouls in this series a ton of free throws I mentioned both guys averaged uh, over 11 free throw attempts per game in this series and then of course when uh, the you know the 2006 finals there's that whole controversy about how Dwayne Wade I think averaged over 15 free throw attempts a game for that series and so what did you think about the officiating in this series and did you feel like for for me I, I thought it was a little bit ticky tack uh, there was there was a lot of little just minor bumps that I think in today's game would would go uncalled that they they just consistently blew the whistle I agree. There was a few in the post I didn't like. Um, I didn't realize how um, upset I was all over again at Manu Ginobili um, and Keith Van Horn at times. <laughs> and, I mean, and Tony Parker at moments. Um, Jason Terry had one as well as a nasty little play I saw earlier. I mean, yeah, it was very TikTok on what they decided to make a priority and what they did. And usually, you know, you watch maybe the first half of the game, one quarter, and you kind of get, you can get a feel if you, know, watch a lot of basketball on like what kind of game the refs are going to call, whether it's going to be okay, we're a little, a little more easier in terms of, you know, contact at the rim, whether we're going to call everything, whether we're going to call as little as possible. And it seemed like the agenda, and I don't think it's that any other way than just the way the refs wanted to wrap the game, seemed to change from quarter to quarter. Um, and it was kind of frustrating at times, because you're right, one person would get called on one one wouldn't. You'd see Avery Johnson, the coaching staff, mad when um, Tim Duncan would go over the back for a rebound, but then on the other end, you know, Eric Dampier would just get himself in the way or something, and no call would happen if he took down on Duncan. It was very weird, um, and, and I would say definitely not consistent. Like, it wasn't in the way of, like, some other series. Like, let's say that Miami Heat-Dallas uh, Mavericks series that would come later, but I think it was, like, the predecessor to that. Yeah, and, and Steve Kerr mentioned this, I believe, at, at, at one point in uh, during Game 5. He mentioned that, uh, you know, the... Uh, you know, when, when you've got a post up, the, the defender is allowed to put essentially a, an arm bar on on the back of the of the post player. And uh, as long as he doesn't use that second hand to also touch, he's allowed to use that one. And Duncan would consistently use his off arm to kind of swipe away and hit that uh, hit that hand. And essentially that gets him, you know, uh, it, it's kind of like a mini hook in a, in a sense. And he consistently was able to get away with that, never got called for that. And then, you know, based on getting that half-step advantage, then there was a little contact when Duncan tried to turn the corner and get into his shot, 
and that bump seemed to be called 100% of the time. And it's just like, you know, uh, how are you, you know, Duncan obviously is so good, he doesn't really need an advantage, but when you're letting him get away with that and you're calling every little bump that the defender, uh, you know, puts on him, how are you supposed to stop this guy? And you really weren't. I mean, that you're right. That kept consistently creating just enough of a barrier to kind of stop any defensive um, obstruction. At the same time, giving him just that advantage to turn the corner into a shot. And it was consistent. I mean, bad enough, he already outmatched the Dallas Bigs from the jump. That he didn't need any extra, you know, to do that. But he did get it with that move, and the refs just were consistently blind to that. Yeah, it... Uh, uh, another thing I noticed was screenplay. Or lack thereof, like the flopping on screens or screens that were like shifting glass. I mean, Eric Dampier had some interesting ones. So I'm not that they were dirty or anything, but just like ones that, you know, and the Spurs guys were definitely best of contact. I did not realize how much they were doing it back then. Oh my God, it was annoying. But like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, just a rare moment of exasperation there. But like, yeah, you could tell that the players were also trying to like adjust. And, and of course, they do in general, you know, embellish a call, sell it on the end. To show, to show, you know, um, hey, look at that, look what happened here. But this was like some very real, like, complaining and like, hey, what's going on? I mean, Duncan was getting animated several times. I don't remember Duncan that animated uh, in all the games I've watched in his career, you know, but several and ones he had where he was like, pumped his fist and like, let's go. You know what I mean? Like, it was, it was kind of waking up some of the players like, okay, we obviously don't have the rest of our set. Not that you would, but in terms of like, this is an extra level of adversity, so we just got to pull through this. Yeah, and there were there were plenty of moments, plenty of uh, clutch moments for for both players, both teams. Game one, San Antonio wins 87-85. Uh, game two is the only real blowout in the series. Dallas wins 113-91. Then game three, the Mavericks get a one point win, 104-103. Game four is an overtime victory for the Mavs, 123-118. Then Game 5, the Spurs uh, hold off the Mavs to win 98-97. And then Game 6, the Spurs win at 91-86. And, and that was a game where Jason Terry at the end of Game 5 actually got uh, in a uh, scrum for the basketball and ended up being a jump ball. He ends up using his fist to hit Michael Finley in the groin area and got suspended for that Game 6, which the Spurs win by 5, which uh, led up to to a, an, another close uh, and, and uh, really fun Game 7. But, yeah, just a, a really compelling series, almost every game coming down to the very end. So, yeah, plenty of moments for uh, for guys to, to get amped. But, uh, you know, we, we kind of talked about uh, Duncan and, and some of the things that led to his success in this series. You know, watching Dirk play, I mean, he's just one of my favorite players to watch. And, and one of the aspects of, of his offense that I think goes a little bit underrated and, and not talked about enough is, you know, he, he likes that post-up play uh, right around that free-throw line extended area at the top of the key. And he'll often start backing guys down. And, um, you know, the, the one weakness of kind of posting up in that area is typically, you know, guys can kind of come from the side or come from behind and poke the ball away. But Dirk was so good, he would take a dribble with his left hand and make sure he's looking on that wing. Then he would turn turn around and take a dribble with his right right hand so that he could keep an eye on the other wing. And he would never take two consecutive dribbles looking on one side of the court. So it was really hard to, to sneak up from behind and, and catch him off guard. 
and it also just allowed him to just slowly get to his spot and with his height and uh, his shooting ability, just get it off over whoever's defending him. Yeah, some guys, you know, they keep their head on a swivel, and um, it felt like Dirk kept his whole body on a swivel. Especially yeah. when he came to posting up. And you're right. I noticed that, too, that constant kind of skin, and still patiently getting where he needs to go, no rushing him on that end. But, like, using his body to shield and making sure that he's also skating the floor, and with his height, you know, being a darn near seven-footer, being able to see over the top for the double teams that both Duncan and... Uh, Novinsky were, were getting. Uh, I think, you know, they felt to me that at more times the Mavericks had better shooters on the floor, more consistent shooters. But just as a general rule, I liked Dirk's method of, of, of getting down to the post and looking as he went. Well, I thought that Duncan made some really great beats uh, over the course of the series. I was able to watch it in a couple of games seven, but they're really more than standard, okay, uh, kind of like straight from the 90s, Patrick Ewing, uh, Kim Olajuwon, Shaquille O'Neal, Get the ball in the post, take a couple dribbles, throw it back out. Something will happen. Either he'll get open shot or I'll be able to get a uh, finish. That I felt a lot more, uh, you know, old school, which I guess is Tim Duncan, so why should I be surprised? Yeah, and, uh, you know, Dallas, I think specifically in, which we'll get to, but in Game 7 started to mix up the the way they, they doubled a little bit. For a lot of the series, they just played him one-on-one, which I didn't think was a great choice because of how dominant he was against whoever was defending him, but... But yeah, Dirk, you know, so good as uh, you know, as a screener, and, and this even uh, was was the case as he got older as well, because his pick and pop is so lethal. You don't want to open that up. It really does allow that ball handler, and we saw this in the 2011 Finals. JJ Barea getting some uh, you know production. Of course, Jason Terry, he loves to go to to his right hand and, and pull up for those mid rangers, but. Dirk setting that screen really makes it such a difficult task on the defense because you want to help on the ball handler. You don't just want to have him turn the corner unimpeded. But, uh, you know, Dirk is that such a great pop threat that it makes it difficult. And then also, you know, um, you, you mentioned as he got older, he started doing those one-footed, uh, you know, fallaways and, and adding a little bit to his repertoire. But, uh, you know, very early in his career, even as, as early as 2006, he had that move where he's driving left and he jumps off his right foot and actually kind of just hangs in that, in that spot and is able to decelerate and let the guy kind of fly by him and, and get to his jumper. Uh, just uh, just a really difficult shot that, that, that he makes look so easy. No, Dirk, you're right. I mean, like I said, was athletically, he had some moves. Or at least able to make and make the most of his athleticism. I don't think he wasn't athletic, but in terms of being a lot more, you know, hanging jumpers, he had a lot of those angles over Bruce Bowen, uh, in particular where you know defense draped over, but I'm taller than you. I'm gonna get to my spot, you know, get elevated real quick, hold for a brief second at the last moment, let it out, and it was just in mid range, automatic, mid range, automatic. You know, take the ball, turn around. It was, it was good. It was really kind of cool to see, and something for me that. Again, I was I was used to the, the land of Dirk and still jumpers and, and one leg fadeaways as a consistent basis where you just kind of get the ball in the post and go to work from there. That to see him kind of get into a spot a little bit more with some more creation from himself was it was the welcome sight and it was really kind of cool to to remember because especially with the legend, so much of what we remember maybe moments or, or series or maybe when we saw them last, but stuff like that, frozen in time, those types of of series are just really really cool and I, I had a blast with that. Yeah, and, and speaking to, you know, this wasn't really the peak of Dirk Nowitzki, at least as an offensive player. It, it may be really his peak as an all-around player if you combine his defense and his rebounding and his offense. But, 
Um, you know, the, the reason I think, you know, a lot of people say that in 2011, the big reason for his development was that uh, he, you know, was able to post up more, take advantage of smaller defenders, get to the rim, and, and, and certainly that's part of it. But I think a, a, a much larger portion of his improvement just was his passing and his handling of double teams. In this series, I noticed a few times where the Spurs would send a quick double and Dirk would just kind of, uh, you know, treat it like a hot potato, try to get the ball out as fast as possible, and, and the Spurs were able to uh, force some turnovers Whereas it felt like, and, and this probably just comes from experience, the game slowing down even more, the, the ability to, when the double comes, you don't feel like you have to pass it right away. You know, you're seven feet tall. You know, hold on to it, see where the defense is rotating, and then make the pass. I think that is something that uh, in this series I noticed was, was a bit of a weakness, is, uh, you know, his, his handling of double teams at times. It just goes to show you the difference in them as players. You know the the how we interpret their passing is so different because again Duncan is passing right near the rim and he's it's always the inside out sort of passes. Whereas Dirk is getting doubled 18 feet from the hoop, so a lot of times it's the outside in passing to cutters near the hoop. So a lot of times, you know, I would say yeah, Dirk maybe had a few of the more flashy passes, a few of the best passes, whereas. Duncan was maybe just the more consistent, and, and, and again, I think that's why he got his nickname uh, the, the Big Fundamental, is because he's, uh, he's kind of boring, there's nothing too flashy, but he just, you know, he just makes the simple right pass on time. Exactly, and you're right, maybe that's exactly what it was, like, it wasn't anything, oh, whoa, what a high-level read, it was like, okay, it was the read, and that assistant, and here we are, you know, back to defense. Yep, um... So, what did you think about? I mean, obviously, there's a, there's a lot of uh, surrounding talent to these uh, these two superstars for San Antonio. Of course, you've got Tony Parker uh, turning 24 during this series. You've got Manu Ginobili, a, a still young Manu, as well. That kind of formed their big three for Dallas. Of course, you had the likes of of Jason Terry and Josh Howard, and and uh, you know, it wasn't just two teams here that uh, you know had had that top five, top ten player. It was it was two really good basketball teams because they had pretty decent depth and an all-star caliber supporting cast. Yeah. No, I mean, both were, were stacked. I I know I mentioned this before we talked uh, a couple of days ago when we first decided to go with the series, and I was like, I liked Josh Howard, and after watching the series, like, I really liked Josh Howard. Like, his game was, was simple. You know, athletic swingman who, you know, would attack the rim, a great finisher, uh, someone who could shoot a little bit, uh, definitely relieve some offensive pressure offside of Dirk. And I'm, I'm saying this because although Jason Terry did a lot, I mean, he averaged more points per in the series, 19 points 
uh, to 16 for Howard, and this is we're talking about Terry right now. He did miss that one game, and so you know I did kind of I have to hold against him. But the point being, like I know Terry's game and Howard's game was interesting, and that was such the quintessential kind of small forward game. But he did it so well, and I just had an appreciation for him. He had a couple in Game Seven alone that I remember where he took over kind of in the first kind of stretch. All the Mavericks were kind of running wild there. I don't want to get too ahead of myself, but he had a move in like the mid post area, uh, kind of waiting for the double team, and he like went baseline or went like posted up, went to his left, and then turned back and faded, switched to a right hand hook as he was going down, and it was just such a good shot. Another move he had was just splitting, uh, like he went around the corner on pick and roll and just split it and then finish with a beautiful left-hand lift. It was just his game. I, I really get a new appreciation for it. But on on Terry, you know, the dude was hitting timely shots. Uh, he also served as kind of a, a point guard alongside Devin Harris. Uh, Jerry Stackhouse was the veteran swingman. I actually found a lot of fun watching him and Finley when they had back-and-forth turns because these guys are like two of the marquee guys in the late 90s, and now, you know, the mid-2000s are definitely role players, like vets at that, but they're just doing their job. Um, Keith Van Horn... I had forgotten he was on the Mavericks. He had his moments, a couple big threes in Game 6 and Game 7. Uh, the big men between Eric Dampier, uh, Zagna Zap, I always butcher that. Um, <laughs> they, they, they were good. And then, um, for whatever reason, when I first saw Dampier, and this just shows you how much Mavericks bigs, I was thinking Brendan Hayward. And I forgot he was on the Wizards back then. Like, it didn't take me a long time to realize it, like just looking at the guy. But at first, in my head, I'm just thinking, like, oh, yeah, you know, Hayward was on this team, like, forever. Um... But that was funny, but they kind of helped form a, a, a team with the Mavericks that fit really well. You had, you had a perfect offensive uh, creation from Terry and Howard. You had Stackhouse coming off the bench. You had Devin Harris, a young point guard that was kind of finding his way. Um, he was kind of up and down this series, but he played well. Uh, Marquise Daniels and, and Adrian Griffin had their moments as kind of defensive guys. Uh, and then you saw Darrell Armstrong, who didn't get playing time that I remember uh, much at all, but like a former Magic guard had his heyday a couple years back alongside uh, Tracy McGrady and them. And then for the Spurs, just the quintessential role players that we all know and love for the Spurs. So you already mentioned Manu and Tony, but uh, Michael Finley, former Maverick. You also had another former Maverick down um, in his last season, and Nick Van Exel, uh, who had a year with Dallas where he had scored with 36 points and 40 points in games two and three of their series in uh, 2003 against the Kings. So it's kind of cool to see Nick Van Exel again, but this is his last season. He had some knee issues, so he slowed down a bit. You had Bruce Bowen. Uh, doing work from the corners and occasionally hitting that wing three. You had uh, Ben Oudra, uh, who we would see a little bit later in his career getting more of a prominent role. Um, Robert Ory, Big Shot Rob, still playing. Uh, Fabricio Alberto, uh, I always mess up that first name, but uh, a guy who played with the Spurs for a couple years as well. And then at the back end, you had uh, Nazi Muhammad, who played forever. And then Rasha Nostarevich, who I was like, I know that guy from somewhere. And then I remember that he was the big for the Timberwolves a couple years back when they made the playoffs in like the late 90s and early 2000s. But both of these teams had a deep bench with guys who were still productive at various stages of their career, whether they would be role players for another four, five, six years, or guys like Van Exel and Ori who were seeing the end of their career closer than the beginning. Yeah, and you know... Both of these teams, I think, were, were championship caliber. Of course, the Spurs won the title on, on each side of this of this 2005-2006 uh, season. Uh, and, you know, Dallas was, was up 2-0 on Miami and, and uh, lost a couple of really tight games to, to lose momentum and end up losing that series in six. But, uh, you know, you could see in this series a few of the issues and, and maybe why Dallas eventually traded Harris for Jason Kidd, in part because, you know, 
despite the fact that I thought Harris was was a solid defensive player, he he had really good quickness. He cut off Tony Parker quite often, a lot more than than most players that I've seen go up against Parker. But his lack of size, and especially the the combination of him and Jason Terry as your backcourt, that lack of size allowed even a guy like Tony Parker, who isn't necessarily known as this bulldozer that's just gonna, you know, um, destroy you inside, but he uh, was able to kind of just shoot over the top of those Mavs guards whenever he wanted, and also you know draw that center help, which was which uh, allowed him to have a, a decent amount of those drop-offs to Tim Duncan. He even had one where he, he, uh, he did a behind-the-back pass to Duncan under the rim. But, uh, I mean, when, when you look at this, this Mavs team, and, of course, knowing now that they didn't win a title and then that 2011 team did, do you think this team didn't get as far as they wanted to more because of that lack of size in the backcourt? or more because of the center play just not being up to the level of, of what they eventually got from Tyson Chandler? I think, I, I want to say a little bit both, but I'm going to say the bigs uh, as, as more of a specific example, or more of a specific reason. Because, I agree. Like, thin backer was small, but like it was more or less not too much different. I mean, you bring in more size with Jason Kidd a couple years later, but I actually liked the kind of platoon that they had back then. You know what I mean? Like, I thought it worked. Um, their bigs definitely were uh, an issue for me. Jacques had his moments, and Dan Pierre did his job, but, like, what? If you were doing, like, a letter grade, I'd give it, like, C+, plus, uh, in terms of what you're getting on both ends. You know, both were limited in the ways of offensive threats. Defensively, they did okay, but their weaknesses are exposed against guys like Duncan and later Shaq, and I feel like Keith Van Horn, you know, at the end of his career, not someone who's nimble or, or particularly, as he was a big dude, but not, like, uh, uh, beast in the post. I, I definitely think that their base was different. Having someone like Tyson Chandler who brings, first off, uh, offensive creation of, of the vertical vertical variety um, was something that helped relieve a lot of pressure for the guards and give a nice contrast alongside Dirk Nowitzki. You weren't getting that from Dampier or Jacques. And on the other end, the athletic ability that Chandler had alongside the defensive force that he was was a lot more of an impediment to other defenses than either Dampier or Jacques who were basically like the big guys that Dallas put in there to muck things out. Not not in a, in a connotation of like fouling or anything, but just big guys in space. And, and you're a center and you stand there and you know that's what you do. Um, but yeah, I definitely think it was a major upgrade later. Especially seeing that guys like J.J. Barrett are able to flourish in future iterations of Dallas. It just definitely looks at their backcourt and goes, you know what, no, they were okay. Yeah, and Harris, you know, despite not having really the, the outside shooting profile, uh, mm-hmm. he did he did a really good job in terms of getting them into transition and, and speeding up the pace, which, especially in this Game 7, if, if we want to get into that now, um, the, the the pace that uh, Dallas had, especially in that first quarter, was, was really instrumental. And I think that's something that really all coaches should emphasize in Game 7s, especially at the beginning when you've got uh, you know a full tank of energy. Just pushing the ball, getting into your offense early, and being able to get through multiple sets is just so crucial. And uh, Dallas was just firing on all cylinders, hitting 15 of their first 17 shots from the field. And, and Dirk also was 4 of 4 with 10 points in the opening quarter and got the Mavs out to a to a double-digit lead at the end of one. Yeah, they started off red hot. Like, Josh Howard had his one more. He was on a run. 
Dirk Nowitzki had he was on a run. Jason Terry popping shots. They were going up and down at that pace. You could see the Spurs just weren't ready for it, at least from the onset. And the Mavericks were blowing it open. I mean, they were, they had a high, it was a high level um, degree of shot making from Dallas. And, and both sides are relatively high. But ultimately, I think uh, Dallas's motor was just a lot stronger. They got a lot more in transition, a lot more easier buckets. And just down the stretch with a few breakaway layups, it was, uh, Dallas came off the gate and it was like energy that they hadn't shown, or not hadn't shown, but um, energy that they must have saved up, you know, because the Spurs were clearly caught flat-footed. Yeah, they um, they were they were just playing excellent on on uh, on both ends of the floor. And uh, you mentioned it, both teams using their their veteran point guard San Antonio playing Van Exel and uh, Dallas playing uh, Armstrong. But uh, really, in, in this game seven, it didn't feel like either of them were really effective at at uh, what they were were trying to do out there. Of course, Armstrong. You would hope brings added defense, but Tony Parker, I think, scored on him three or four times in that first quarter. And uh, Van Exel, you know, trying to bring that offensive punch for the Spurs just uh, really couldn't get anything to drop. It was funny because it was like both coaches are, okay, this is why we have you on the end of our bench. You know, you're our vets. You guys got us here. You know, um, Armstrong, you've always been a spark plug. You've always been a defensive player. Um, this is the year 2000. Go out there. Nick Van Exel, you know, you've always been a guy who can throw it up from the basket, you know, go over the place, it's, it's 99, go out there, and then they start playing, like, whoa, whoa, my bad, it's been five years, and multiple knee injuries, um, whoops, and so, like, that's what it seemed like from them, because it was sad in a way, just being a, a fan of those guys, just as basketball in general, knowing that I've watched games and highlights, and not really remembering that, oh yeah, they had spot minutes in, in a game seven, you know, ten years after their prime, you know what I mean, but like, I remember Darrell Armstrong, I remember like 2002, 2003. You know, and even then he was kind of at the end. So now I go back even further, like 97, 98 with Penny Hardaway as the point guard then. And then when I think of Nick Van Exel, Nick the Quick with the Lakers, and then later with the Nuggets a little bit. And then I remember even more with the Mavericks, you know, as that spark plug guy. So it was weird to kind of see Armstrong was, was moving like he had his feet were made of lead. And Nick Van Exel missing, throwing up floaters that were landing like rocks. You know, it was just, it was just, it was different and, and kind of sad. Beyond uh, Avery Johnson asking his team and emphasizing the, the up-tempo style in Game 7 and, of course, playing uh, you know maybe some more defensive guys and the likes of Armstrong. The other thing I think he, uh, he focused on in, in his game plan was to try to get Bruce Bowen off of Dirk Nowitzki with, with certain actions. And, of course, Bowen had a great play at the end of Game 5 where Dirk shot, faked him up into the air, took a sidestep dribble to his right, and Bowen was able to block it from behind, which ended up saving the Spurs and extending the series. So, you know, obviously Bowen, the, the Spurs' best perimeter defender, the, the Mavs, don't want him on him. So they, they ran a couple of actions where Nowitzki would set the would be the ball screener uh, on the, uh, the right side of the floor, and then uh, he would kind of uh, come off of that screen rolling to the rim, and then he would get a cross screen getting him to the left side to, to catch the basketball, and that forced a switch. Oftentimes that led to uh, Duncan guarding Nowitzki, and of course Tim didn't want to, to get too close to him, so Dirk was able to get a couple of, uh, of shots off. But a, a nice little, you know, as you see throughout the course of a series, a nice little adjustment from Johnson. I thought he, he had a very good coaching series, not only in Game 7 with, 
with uh, some of those actions that he threw out there and also the, the double teaming of Duncan, which I think was really effective, especially in the first half. But also in Game 5, they were, they se- they were seemingly out of it, and, and Johnson threw in a bit of a, uh, a zone defense, which got him back in the game and, and gave him a chance at the end to win it. Uh, but uh, yeah, I was, I was relatively impressed with, uh, with how Avery Johnson coached the, this series. Oh yeah, he definitely had the, the little uh, little general moniker uh, in full effect between that intense face on the sidelines, kind of being a master technician on the court. You're right. I liked and I noticed it too. Um, you said the, the clever screening action to kind of get Dirk away from Bowen and then just out of the range of comfort of uh, Tim Duncan to kind of get his shot. He didn't need a lot of time, but you know, for, for Duncan to get out there and I was watching it. I even replayed a couple going. Oh, okay, I see. Come to baseline, you know, send the guard down, a little switch action. I was like, oh, I like this. Like, that was that was kind of cool. And little things like that, like you said, selected dumb teams on Duncan. Just these little moves in the margins. And from someone who did watch the entire series, you know, start to finish, being able to catch that adjustment then and knowing that it was well, not only being, you know, called out, but just being able to see, okay, now, you know, Pop's going to switch this by going, you know, uh, bigger, you know, or whatever the case may be, bringing in Ori a little quicker. It was interesting to kind of see the matchups go back and forth between them. But that one, Garrett, was a really important one that I noticed as well. Yeah, and the and the doubles on Duncan uh, made it made a big difference. Helped them get out to uh, I believe it was a twenty point lead at one point uh, in the uh, either late second or early third, and. You know, with with Tony Parker, you know, we, we see a, we see a bit of the NBA's play style sort of shifting at this stage, where you've got more shooting. Of course, we had the seven second or less Suns at this point, but uh, you still see a bit of that old school where Tony Parker is spotting up at the top of the key from 22 feet. You know, just a a step inside the three point line. Of course, Bowen. Uh, was was not uh, that productive outside of the corners. Although you did mention that he did hit us, he he did hit it above the break three in game seven, which uh, which definitely uh, shocked me. Um, but uh, yeah, those uh, those instant double teams on Duncan, I think had a, had an effect, and especially you know you go six games. I think um, uh, you can criticize Johnson for not making that adjustment sooner, but. Um, I think the fact that you can, if you can show something brand new to your opponent in a game seven, I think that uh, that genuinely uh, pays dividends because typically at, at this point in a series, you've shown all of your cards and, and teams know how to deal with, with everything you can throw at them. Yeah, you've already been through, you know, games, quarters, everything's been done in terms of personnel switches and, and strategy and scheme kind of going up and down over the course of the series and assistant coaches and coaches are making notes of all of that. So to have these little things at the end, you know, that you were able to kind of hold back on the back burner um, and, and use them, you know, at their most devastating effect in the game seven when you can't really plan for it outside of what you've already had to deal with over the course of the series, it, it was really cool. Um, and that's part of the fun of watching these kind of games and seeing, you know, oh, wow, okay, there's something that we've been holding on or, you know, we teased, we may have um, made a move in the first quarter to kind of see how they would adjust to it and then go, okay, we can continue with this movement down the stretch. Whether that be a personnel switch, whether that be, you know, timely shooting from a guy that you decide to put in and take advantage of a certain matchup. Uh, it, it was really, again, kind of cool to see. And the, the, the student and master kind of tit for tat between Pop and Avery Johnson, uh, just as a, as a basketball history guy with the way they had their kind of time together with the Spurs, you know, not only in the late 90s, but uh, the 99 finals and, you know, into when Johnson kind of closed out his career as a member of the Mavericks. It was, it was really kind of cool. 
Yeah, so many, so many interesting subplots. Of course, uh, you know, both teams being uh, from the state of Texas as well. I got a kick out of it at one point in Game Seven. They uh, they mentioned a, a a quote from Mark Cuban where he called the river walk the muddy waters. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of miss that. I, I, I want more of that where we've got the owners talking trash during a series. Uh, I think that is just, that's really fun. The more drama we can get, the better, I think. Uh-huh. I agree. As long as Scott told him for Tina, you got, you got my vote. Uh, <laughs> but, like, I found it funny, too. I think it was the play. I think it was, it was Howard or Pavlovitsky made a shot, and it went to some uh, Mavericks fans. And I forgot what announcer was. Albert, I forgot. He's like, there are some Mavericks fans here. And it's like, well, of course they are. They're all in Texas. Like, like come on now. Yeah, it's what, like, a, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not uh, very good on the geography of Texas, but I would have a couple hours. Yeah, not not too bad. Um, no, like, of course there'd be some there. Even if, like, even if they didn't take on the trip, there's some that probably live in San Antonio that are Mavs fans. Like, it's just, it was funny the way he said it. I'm not sure if it meant to be a dig or he found it funny or he genuinely thought that it was interesting that there was actually Mavs fans there, but I thought it was hilarious. Yeah, you brought up Marv, and uh, I thought the the broadcasting in this series was excellent. Of course, I think this is this is Marv before he's he's kind of gone downhill just because of age related yeah. reasons, and and also, yeah, uh, Steve Kerr also uh, an excellent color commentator, one of the best that the NBA has really ever had, and uh, he he did an excellent job in this series. But uh, you know, Dallas again. I mentioned I think they were up twenty at one point in the first half, really controlling the ball game. But uh, one play, Corbin, and I, I, I'm curious to see if you noticed this as well, and and, and thought of this as kind of a momentum changer. But with the, with the score, uh, Dallas sixty, San Antonio forty four, with one forty four to go in the first half. Tim Duncan comes up on a defensive possession and gets back-to-back blocks, one on a Jason Terry baseline drive, and then another when uh, Josh Howard comes up with the offensive rebound and Duncan blocks him from behind. It leads to Michael Finley saving the ball from going out of bounds, gets it to Ginobili, who finds Parker on the fast break for a layup but uh, you know, to, to cut the lead to 14. But I thought that was such a huge moment in this game because, again, Dallas was controlling it. You know, they get a layup there. They go back up 18, maybe can build it back up to 20 before the half. But instead, the Spurs get it down to, to 14, and, and that ends up being the deficit at uh, at the end of, uh, of the second quarter. No, so I did. The funny thing is I, I looked at it. Not, I, I thought that play was at the beginning, but I didn't look at it like, oh, wow, that set the tone. You know what I mean? Like, I was like, okay. And I told you this before, I knew that kind of the ultimate outcome, but I was like, Okay, what makes this game like a classic? Because the Mavericks are rushing out to like this just great lead. Duncan still didn't have a rebound at the nine minute mark in the third quarter. Like, what is going on? Um, but, but before, I mean, he had a, at the point that I've watched that this move happened, he hadn't had a rebound at all. It was just okay, like the Mavericks can run him out the out, out the out the woodwork. And then he had that block, and then that thought, and you can hear the crowd get kind of back right up in it. Yeah. And just suddenly, just so suddenly. The Mavericks sort of faltered just a bit, and that kind of went down to that led its way also into the third quarter as well, where they're pushing, they're pushing, they're pushing, and then those blocks. But really, I think that that transition uh, basket for the Spurs kind of halted it, and then the tide started to slowly turn back to San Antonio's favor. 
Yeah, in that third quarter, you could tell the Spurs defense picked up a bit, and uh, Popovich saying at halftime that that was the, uh, speaking on the, the first half of that game seven, saying it was the worst half of basketball they had played all year. Uh, I think that was that was a bit harsh, given that I think Dallas played really well. Um, but, uh, you know, you see the, ma- the, the Spurs defense pick up, and one of the things, you know, watching back on this that I was really impressed by is watching Manu Ginobili defensively. You know, I, I, I mentioned a couple of Dirk's uh, turnovers when he faced double teams. A lot of the time it was Manu with a hard double team and then using his active hands, anticipating where Dirk's going to pass it and, and getting a deflection, getting a steal. Um, but, uh, you know, he is just a, a really underrated defender, I think, when, when you talk about his career, especially in his prime. You know, he did a little bit of everything. He's getting deflections, steals. He's, uh, he's getting in the way and, and taking a charge every now and again. He's diving on a loose ball. He's doing all of those little things. And uh, it, 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 it's eerily reminiscent, you know, if, if uh, anyone listening hasn't really seen uh, Manu Ginobili, uh, especially at his peak, Defensively, he's reminiscent to me a little bit of, of Marcus Smart. Yeah, I mean, he was, a, he was a pretty good irritant. I don't remember, like, taking much stock in his defense. Not saying that, that he wasn't, like, a bad defender by any stretch. I mean, everybody remembers that block, you know, James Harden in the playoffs. I think it was the 2015 playoffs. Um, I mean, Ginobili was, 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 was a wily defender. That's the best way of using it. Where, you know, able to kind of get in the way. Great, great hands. Great defensive IQ. Not someone that you're looking like first team on defense, or and even um, someone to like Bruce Bowen's um, reputation of a defender, but someone who, who knew how to play great position defense come with the proper double teams. Yeah, uh, the more I think about it, even down to the ridiculous flopping at times, um, <laughs> right. I see the comparisons. You're right. Yeah, I think he is just a, a really good two way player. Uh, another kind of turning point I noticed in in that third quarter as well was, you know, San Antonio, I think, cuts the lead at one point to, to about eight, continues to just, uh, you know, get a little bit closer, and then uh, Dirk and, and the Mavs come back, hit a couple of shots, extend the lead back up to 74-62 with, with 6.15 left in the third, and then Manu Ginobili, talking about that flopping you just referenced, draws the fourth foul on Josh Howard on an obvious leg kick when Ginobili's shooting a three. The refs fall for it. Ginobili hits all three, and it also sends Josh Howard, who, as you rightfully uh, mentioned earlier, is an excellent player and and arguably the third best player on the Mavs at this point. Uh, But, uh, you know, again, a a play that should be an offensive foul. The Mavs keep a 12-point lead, could extend it on the other end. Instead, it's a nine-point game, and they've got to send one of their best players to the uh, sideline. I was living on that. You said the refs fell for it. No, the refs had their eyes closed on that play. Anybody with any eyes open would have just accidentally called that. You know what I mean? Like, oh, just on principle. Like, it was, oh, my gosh. It was ridiculous. Yeah, that was, um, not it was a big in terms of a turning point, uh, a, a big loss for the Mavs at that stretch in time with Howard, who had been cooking, like, like we both talked about, was just really good this series and really good that season. Just kind of being, Sent to the bench, of course, you know, being an excellent free throw shooter, making all of those, you know, um, further the, 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 the contest and the game. It, it just all over. A momentum standpoint, from an actual, you know, lead standpoint, it, it just turned into their favor. It was, it was tremendously frustrating. 
Yeah, and again, people that uh, didn't really see Josh Howard play might look at his career stats and say, what are you talking about, third best player? But at this time, you know, he was an all-star caliber uh, wing player, which is so valuable, obviously. And it was just the fact that his, uh, I believe it was uh, knee issues that kind of uh, shortened his career significantly. He fell off a cliff um, after a couple of seasons. But for a few years there, he was legitimately really good. So, yeah, that was... That was a big blow to lose him uh, for a good chunk of the second half. And uh, the the guy that stepped up, though, for the Mavs and helped them maintain the lead, at least through the, the end of the third, was uh, Keith Van Horn, a guy who came back in Game 5 after missing a, the last couple of months. And uh, he was able to provide that extra floor spacing, hit a couple of threes, and it was it was an interesting sort of give or take because obviously when, when Dallas went with Van Horn as opposed to a Dampier or a Jop, they, they lost a lot on the defensive end, especially dealing with, with Tim Duncan and, and protecting the rim. They gained so much more with, with his spacing, especially in the corners. Oh, yeah. I mean, he had one three in, in Game 7, I remember, that he just horribly airballed. And the friends, I'm like, oh, wow, Keith Van Horn, you know, from the Nets, great. And I'm like, eh, he's kind of a step a little bit, you know what I mean? Like, he's, I get why he's there, like, like the essential kind of function in theory, but I hadn't really seen it come to fruition, although they'd already referenced that he had played a role in game six. But then he had, I think, three straight, or three um, in the third quarter, for real, like, threes that, from the same spot, all in the corner, that kind of, it pushed a, 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 what had been a lead that was cut by the Spurs back to a 10-point lead, I think, after his last three, um, 84 to 74 in the third quarter. And I was like, okay, I see now. Because, you know, they were doing double teams and then collapsing, and the Mavs did a great job of, you know, making sure that ball swung around the corn. The ball swung around the horn and found Van Horn <laughs> in, the, in the left corner, you know, again and again. And the first one, you know, he's wide open. The second one, the contest was just late, but he was earning a rhythm. And then he was even emboldened by that because then he tried to take one coming off a high screen like he was like some version of... Yeah, they ran a, they ran a play for him. Yeah, like, like off, like, okay, he's in a rhythm, and the shot was, like, well short. Um, I think he hit, like, the bottom front of the rim. But it was funny because he was on fire. Now, I just thought it was interesting that they said, okay, he made three straight of the same shot. And Van Horn was a very solid three-point shooter for his first career. You know, very good, but it was funny. Okay, now... We're going to run off the screen. Let's do it. You know what I mean? It was just, it was a lot of kind of see that momentum because you love when the players hot and they got to take that heat check or, you know, a coach calls a, a quick action to kind of keep that hot hand going. And when he misses, it's like, oh, darn. Yep, they lost it. You know? <laughs> but, like, it was fun. Yeah, I, I've never been a big fan of coaches, uh, you know, seeing a guy make two threes in a row, especially a role player that isn't necessarily known as being streaky, per se, uh, and then call a play for him. It's like, no, he, he hit those two threes out of just the regular flow of your offense. You know, if he gets another look, at, uh, you know, through that, fine. But, yeah, I'd still rather be running a play for Dirk Nowitzki at this point than, than uh, Keith Van Horn. Than Van Horn. Uh, I mean, I wouldn't want to run that play for Van Horn back when 97 when he was probably in his like eh, 97 wasn't his problem like 97 98 he was still a very solid player like <laughs> like even at, 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 the, at the zenith of Van Horn's career I, I still say no for Dirk you know yeah um the the other thing that I think is fascinating and and kind of a comparison with these two teams is you've got the the star power forwards on both groups that both can can isolate in, in different zones, and then you've got the role players that are also really good in isolation. Uh, you know, the, the, the Spurs would, would often run pick and roll with Tony Parker or even just let him go one-on-one at the top. 
and, and same with Manu. And then for Dallas, they would often give Josh Howard or Jason Terry opportunities to isolate and, and even Jerry Stackhouse off the bench. Um, Stackhouse was, was funny, you know, watching him. At times you're thinking, wow, this guy is, is great just as kind of a scoring plug off the bench. But then there's other times where him as an off-ball player, I was really frustrated watching him because it seemed like the, the Mavs would run a set, uh, they'd draw the double, they'd kick it out, and, and Stackhouse had an open three, and he just passed it up to take a contested 18-footer. Uh, that, was, that was a bit frustrating and something that he did probably too many times in this series. It, it felt like he kind of went back into old habits of Stack, which was like, you know, uh, let's say early to mid-2000s, with the Pistons and the Wizards, where, okay, now I hold the ball, and now I work my way into an 18-footer, because that's what I do, you know what I mean? And this is kind of the turn of, okay, role players space the floor, kind of get to a shot, and there was way too many possessions, you're right, where Stackhouse had the record scratch three. The ball swung around on the horn, it gets to Stackhouse in the corner, okay, take the three. No? You want to hold it? Okay, job step? Okay, you want to play around a little bit? Okay. And, like, it was weird in terms of seeing, uh, I guess he hadn't quite got to where I don't want to say accepting of his role, but he definitely wanted to go and make some more creation off the bounce. All he had to do was take the shot and shoot it. Yeah, and so to start the fourth, you know, the Spurs start chipping away at the lead. Part of that uh, also involves Josh Howard picking up his fifth foul, which also, you know, at the 9.32 mark in the fourth quarter, which takes him out of the game again. And you talk about a bad foul call, which was his fourth on that Manu kickout. You know, that's making an impact. You know, even if the fifth foul is legitimate, that also takes him out of the game. So, uh, you know, another another instance where that one bad foul call really is impacting Dallas. They played most of the second half without Josh Howard on the floor. Um, and so, you know, San Antonio just continues to, to, uh, to cut into that lead and, and really make it a, a tight game down the stretch. And... You know, it really became the Tim Duncan show in the last couple of minutes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, now, again, he had this advantage, it felt like, throughout. Like, you know, these, the Mavericks defenders, you know, bless their efforts. They, they they did the best they could, but you were able to get Duncan down. He was very aggressive, you know, especially down the stretch. And I don't even, again, remember him being, um, because I didn't watch enough prime Tim Duncan. Um, and say, so, okay, give me the ball, I'm going to go to work again. And again, and I'm going to, you know, create content and get to the line. And it wasn't the greatest of foul shooters, but definitely solid enough. And put pressure on the room at all times. Yeah, uh, he had, uh, you know, and, and Avery Johnson was kind of going back and forth between wanting to play the offensive lineups with Van Horn or just a, yeah. another wing or guard out there as opposed to Jop or Dampier. And there was a possession where Duncan uh, had had dirt guarding him, and he just did a, a quick spin on the baseline and got an easy layup. Then uh, then Johnson makes the defensive substitution, puts, uh, I believe it was Dampier, back out there on the floor, and he, he draws the double and finds uh, Michael Finley to, to, for a, a three at the top of the key to cut the Mavs lead down to one. Then the next possession, he fouls out Dampier, uh, makes one of two from the line to tie the ball game. And then on the next offensive possession, he draws another double because he's being guarded by Dirk once again and hits Ginobili to give the Spurs a 104-101 lead with 32.2 seconds left. But uh, really, no matter what the Mavs tried to do down the stretch of this ball game, Tim Duncan had the answer. And ladies and gentlemen, you, you, you heard the way that Garrett is describing how this went down. Like, that's how it went down. It was Duncan. Duncan, Duncan, creating 
soft lineup seeds, they have to play based off availability. And and that kind of weakened him a little bit further, especially when you already have Duncan on a roll and Dan Pierre, as you saw by his file out, was, was already not a, a already less than ideal defender. But now you're bringing in guys uh, like Van Horn or going smaller in ways that against Tim, that's, that's not what you want to do. And yeah, you could say he single-handedly kind of brought that team, brought the Spurs back with his run that, you know, either scoring or assisting created that comeback. Yeah, not only the dominance down the stretch of regulation of Game 7, but uh, in Game 5, he went 11 for 11 from the field in the first half, and they showed a graphic which, uh, you know, had my jaw on the floor where he had drawn nine fouls (laughs) on Dallas defenders in the first half of Game 5, had got three on Dampier, three on Jop, and three on Van Horn. So, uh, you know, the guy just uh, really, really dominant giving the Spurs a three-point lead again with just 32.2 seconds left in the decisive game of this series. So it looks like, you know, after the Spurs are down 3-1, they come back and and win two in a row and look like they might uh, go on to advance to the Western Conference Finals. But then, you know, the other uh, superstar power forward, power forward legend in Dirk Nowitzki steps up and uh, he faces up on Bruce Bowen on the right side of the floor, drives left to the rim, gets the bucket and the foul as Manu Ginobili comes over and tries to strip him. And it's another one of those where, you know, Greg Popovich has talked about over the years how he absolutely uh, would would pull his hair out at some decisions Ginobili would make over the years, but he just kind of let him play because Ginobili would make these these brilliant plays that would kind of, uh, you know, um, the the good would outweigh the bad. But in, in this instance... Instead of just letting Dirk get this layup and allowing the Spurs to still be up one and, and the Mavs would likely have to foul, instead Ginobili goes for the steal and Dirk draws the foul and converts at the free-throw line to tie the game up. Yeah, and honestly, you're right. Like That Manu play was, was sad because he had no way of getting that. Like He was behind the play clearly, you know, coming over from the backside. There was no way that he was going to um, be able to impact that shot in any way other than a foul, so it was just a really... Like you said, kind of dumb decision. And with Manu, you're right. The good go with the bad. But that bad, unfortunately, uh, in Game 7 for Manu, that bad happened uh, more often than the Spurs would have preferred. Well, and then, you know, with the game tied, under 24 seconds left, uh, 21.2 to be exact, uh, Greg Popovich runs a uh, 21.6 left, I should say. Greg Popovich runs an, an isolation for Manu Ginobili to end the game. And uh, he ends up driving to his uh, strong left hand, gets a decent look off the glass, can't convert. Duncan gets the offensive rebound, and Dirk is able to block the putback attempt uh, from behind to uh, send the game to overtime. But given what I had just talked about, how it was Duncan post-up score, Duncan post-up three, Duncan post-up free throws, Duncan post-up three, uh, you you got to wonder there. I know it's easier just to give the ball to a perimeter player and say dribble out the clock and then, you know, create. You've got to wonder whether they should have just uh, fed the hot hand there at the uh, with the, the last possession of regulation. Yeah, it probably would have been smart considering the offensive efficiency that you were having thus far, you know? Like, whether it was for him or someone else, you were getting good looks and those looks were getting converted. So, uh, yeah, you would think that... Uh, Change for the sake of change sometimes, just like you said, uh, coaching sometimes, you know, going with the hot hand of a role player, and sometimes let's switch it up because that's why I'm here. You know, it's just not the best option. 
Right, and and so to start overtime, Avery Johnson goes uh, goes back to to Jop as his uh, center, and recognizing that the Duncan was was killing his team, uh, he he needed to get some size back out there. But Jop was a guy that at, was starting at the beginning of the series, then then uh, was was getting uh, fewer and fewer minutes as the series went along. But uh, Jop ended up making a, a pretty big impact in the overtime session. Yeah, I mean, and honestly, he had moments before where, you know, he had a mid-range jumper, was uh, impactful around the rim, kind of making the most of his size and activity down there. You know, in, in a role-player way, this guy was never, you know, a star or anything of that sort. I think it's a pretty solid career, though, but he was someone who, as you said, the overtime period, was playing, uh, up, playing up a level um, and, and making more of an impact on the glass and just around for the Mavericks. That uh, was welcome, especially considering that they would even have Dampier and where they were um, in that stretch of time. And the other thing, you know, when you when you factor in a game seven, obviously both coaches are going to play their their star players a lot of minutes. Both Duncan and Nowitzki uh, ended up playing over forty nine. They they actually played one second different. Nowitzki ended up playing forty nine minutes and thirty four seconds, and Tim Duncan played forty nine minutes and thirty three seconds. Um, but uh, you know. After playing 44 minutes, really just getting a couple of minutes break in each half, you got to imagine those guys were a little bit gassed. And Tim Duncan uh, missed a couple of point-blank shots that you would expect him to hit in the overtime session, which could be contributed to uh, just that uh, you know overwhelming feeling of fatigue. I talk about the fatigue, and I kind of go back to uh, harken back to what you had mentioned when you were talking about um, the pace that Dallas played with in the beginning having to match that in some way and yeah. expend more energy and slowing down Dallas over the course of the game made it close at times, but then that energy that you would have expent over, you know, the normal uh, action of the game, you've now put in a much shorter quantity just to come back from such a big deficit. So now you're playing out the line, and the Mavericks had more, and, and, and San Antonio, to the credit, fought all the way back, but that sustained effort left a lot out of them because they were down a big hole, and that hole did not, you know, disappear um, in, in moments. It wasn't like the Steph, uh, um, Steph Curry Warriors, you know, shoot five, six threes, all of a sudden it's a tight game. No, this took a lot more of a climb, defensive stop, you know, drive, defensive stop, you know, uh, transition plays. And so I think by the time that we saw um, Duncan went one for seven in that final period, in the overtime I'm referring to, and a lot of it just looked he was tired. I mean, he played a lot, and he also played uh, 49 different minutes than Dirk did. In the sense that Dirk's there pushing the pace forced Duncan to play at a pace that he obviously wasn't used to consistently. And the Spurs at that time definitely weren't a running gun team. You know, you did have uh, Tony Parker, Ma Ginobili, but at the same time, the rest of the team was pretty older and not someone that they didn't necessarily walk it up, but they weren't kind of blazing up and down the court either. Yeah, that's a really good point that, uh, you know, that's not only do I think pushing the tempo uh, especially in you know in, in every game, but especially in a game seven, can benefit your offense because you can run through more sets. You can hope for if you run more actions, you, there's more opportunities for the defense to make a mistake. Um, you can also get cross matches, which I think Dallas got a few of those in the early going. But then also, yes, that uh, that uh, fatigue that you can put on the the opponent. There was a play I, I remember in that I think it was the first quarter where. Duncan actually converted a hoop on on one end and it fell to the floor and Dallas just pushed it down the floor and Duncan wasn't able to get back in time and Dirk found Dampier for a dunk uh, off of a made basket so uh, you know and you, you got to imagine that is just very exhausting 
to to deal with and and yeah going into that extra session not getting any sort of a break um, you know it's another thing I think coaches should consider as well um, is maybe giving guys just just a minute break to start in overtime uh, that, that I, I don't really ever see but it's something I've always thought you know why don't you just give the guy a little breather to start this you know you've got five minutes you're not going to lose this in the first 30 seconds yeah, exactly, and especially where both teams are fatigued and both the stars are playing well, then you can bring that starter, you know, relatively fresh, quote-unquote fresh, for the last couple minutes to really, you know, either keep the game tighter or drive the game home. Uh, but instead, no, why not when you can keep a guy who's clearly tired, you know, and play him into the ground. But no, I, I mean, I think that's more, definitely wasn't a thought back then, I would imagine. You know, you just start the guys in overtime, you play your best guys until they drop or the game ends one or the other, and I think this was like, yeah, um, another another uh, poor call on Josh Howard, which fouled him out. Where he was guarding Manu Ginobili, it looked like Ginobili just did a uh, what would you know a, a typical Euro step for him, and then Howard anticipated it perfectly and just got in his way. Didn't you, didn't slap down on his arm or anything. There was there was some contact, but to me, it's the offense initiating it if the defender has position. Um, and they, they call him for that foul, sends Ginobili to the line, but it's another one of those just ticky-tack fouls where I'm like, just let him play, stop. Uh, you know, that that's the other thing that I think that's very frustrating. I think that was what frustrated Mark Cuban so much in the in the ensuing finals later that year was just, just let these guys play a little bit. Stop, uh, you know, dictating how this game goes. You know, the, the referees oftentimes, unfortunately, want to be the star of the show. Yeah, and you can tell their impact was felt, unfortunately, throughout it. Because instead of laying off and just calling a good game and making the calls that are right in front of you, which they missed time and again, they're needlessly mucking up the game uh, with, with, with fouls on play-on calls and play-on calls on clear fouls. And it was just a mess. And again, it, it didn't totally dictate my, or it didn't totally, um, like, sour my taste on the game, much like, you know, any of that 2006 finals would do to me. But it was something that you just look back and go, okay, this is very unfortunate for one of these teams. And honestly, both of them were, were, were wrong uh, several points during this game. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, the, the final free throw count, San Antonio ended up shooting 39 free throws. Tim Duncan got 23 free throw attempts oh, in this game. Wow. Um, for for Dallas, uh, ended up shooting 31, and Dirk ended up getting 16. But also, you know, Dallas ending up uh, taking a lead down the stretch and, and San Antonio being forced to foul. So they, they intentionally set Dallas the line for, I think, four or six of those free throws. So the Spurs definitely uh, had the advantage with the whistle. Um, but uh, a guy that really stepped up, you know, we talked about him briefly a little bit ago, was Jerry Stackhouse in the overtime and, and doing what uh, what you said was, was kind of what he was known for in his prime is those mid-range jumpers. He had a couple of of real clutch, difficult shots off the dribble from about 15 feet that really helped Dallas uh, pull away in the extra session. And I honestly laughed when that happened because in my mind I was already complaining in time of his record scratch shots early in the game. Like, dude, why are you doing that? But then he started making them. I said, oh, I get it. You know, Jerry Stackhouse do something we didn't. He was taking them early to kind of get himself in a good rhythm for later in the game when those shots were kind of the, the norm. And I, I don't know if I'm making more of a joke or if he actually was, but, like, the point being, he came through in the clutch. didn't make a three um, in Game 7 to drive out of two, but he did make a bunch of clutch shots, uh, like, 
mid-range, that end of mid-range, getting to a spot, you know, straight on 1997 basketball. Um, and he had six assists as well. Uh, he actually led the Mavericks uh, for the game in assists, which isn't something you think of with Stackhouse. Who, I mean, he also played 40 huge minutes. Yeah, and, uh, you know, another guy that we haven't really talked a lot about, and in part because he got suspended at Game 6, uh, making that dumb play at the end of Game 5, but Jason Terry had a big game. You know, the, the numbers don't look amazing, but 9 of 20 from the field, 3 of 6 from the from the three-point line, 6 of 6 from the charity stripe, ended up with 27 points, was a plus 13 in this game in his 48 minutes. He made a, a, a big contribution, and... And Steve Kerr mentioned it, you know, part of the reason Dallas ended up scoring just 86 in that game six was, you know, without Terry out there, you know, you probably have to put out another uh, guy that's just not as good of a a shooting threat. And so when Dirk got doubled, the, uh, you know, the Spurs were able to to rotate around and and not really concede much. But in this game, when when Dirk was was getting double teamed, the the Mavs often found success with, uh, with, cutting from the likes of, of Harris and Howard and also the three-point shooting from Van Horn and uh, Jason Terry. Yeah, the energy and versatility of the Mavericks offense really helped release some pressure for Dirk. And, and yeah, uh, we didn't talk about it enough. You're right, Jason Terry, not only did he have a huge game, like I said, plus 13, 27 big points, uh, six rebounds as well, but he was also someone that, uh, at least during the third quarter, um, and in, I mean, into, some of, or into the third and fourth, he alone kind of uh, held back some Spurs rallies with some big shots, you know, some kind of desperation in the shot clock sh- um, shots or some threes along the wing. Like, he played a very collected game, definitely redeemed himself for what happened um, in Game 5 and being suspended for Game 6, and he was another guy who made a perfect complimentary piece to Dirk. In fact, like, I would argue more for Josh Howard in terms of how well he played, but he was the third guy both in, like, effectiveness but also in the peck board. If you look at the shot attempts, you know, Dirk and Terry each got 20, and then Howard, you know, who also battled foul trouble and had an earlier game, got 12. He probably would have had more, um, more of an average for those other two, but what Dirk and Jason did, not only being versatile all over, but both of them being better shooters consistently than Howard, uh, really helped. And with Terry, you had someone who could swing between both point guard and off guard role and make tough shots um, alongside Dirk while giving him some pressure. It almost reminded me of a, and this isn't uh, at all a like for like example, but almost like a a Pat Ewing, John Starks thing, like, except Dirk is the star, because Jason Terry was, like, never a star. He was someone who could play very much like a star for long stretches, so really I should have just compared Terry to Starks. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, this this series was, was absolutely fantastic. I, I'm sure I can speak for both of us when I say it was, a, it was an absolute joy to watch. You know, you talk about two teams that were you know, neither team ended up winning the championship, which, you know, maybe makes this series a little bit forgotten to time. But uh, the Spurs were a 63-win team. The Mavs won 60 games. Uh, both teams were uh, the best on one side of the floor. The Mavs were the best offense that season. The Spurs were the best defense. They both had, uh, they were both basically top 10 on both ends of the of the court as well. Uh, and yeah, given that you've got two superstars going at it, uh, there's just so much, and, and, and given that we had multiple games go to overtime, multiple games decided by three points or less, uh, you know, when, when you talk about a series, and, and of course we've, we've discussed quite a few here on Duncan Dynasty, it doesn't get much better than this. No, it really doesn't. It was, it was such high-quality games, back and forth, no major blowouts, stars, role players coming through in the clutch on both sides. It really was fun. 
Speaking of the, yeah, you mentioned how great the 06 season was, and uh, we've we've even discussed potentially doing that Phoenix Clippers series. I, I know I really enjoyed that. That was a fun one. Even the, the round prior to that, uh, Phoenix versus uh, L.A., that was like Kobe Bryant's best season, and, and the Lakers were up 3-1 in that, and the Suns come back. There was the, uh, the great series in the first round, and the other conference between the, uh, the Cavs and the Wizards, LeBron versus Gilbert Arenas. I mean, there was just so much great basketball, so many great games in that postseason that maybe we'll have to just start uh, doing a, a whole, like, uh, 06 retrospective here, Corbin, pretty soon. Yeah, that would be fun. I mean, we, we might as well just kind of uh, go off the ante here. We've done games, we've done series, and now we just go back into a whole postseason. Why not? Well, was there anything else about this series uh, or these teams, these players that you want to discuss before we, we wrap up here? No, I think it was a lot of fun. I'm, I'm glad we, we were able to pick this one. I enjoyed this. It was a blast to, to look back on. And, um, yeah, I mean, as we kind of wait out this offseason, however long or short it may be, um, I definitely encourage folks, watch some classic games. Why not? I mean, definitely stay, I don't want to say stay distracted, but there's stuff out there that, Absolutely, and uh, you know we're recording this on on Monday night, but uh, yeah, um, depending on what happens on uh, on Tuesday evening, people may need a distraction. <laughs> Corbin, thanks again as always for doing this. It was a this was a blast. Thanks so much for listening to Duncan Dynasty. Please, if you can, if you have a moment, go to iTunes and uh, give us a rating and review preferably five stars, and uh, if you could give any thoughts about what you'd like about the show, that would be much appreciated. We are also on Spotify, so uh, you can give us a rating on there as well. If you'd like to find some other content outside of this podcast, you can find me on Twitter, at Garrett Bougay, that's G-A-R-R-E-T-T-B-U-G-A-Y. I will be... uh, tweeting various uh, NBA thoughts as well as some some thoughts on some other uh, interests of mine including soccer and film and television so uh, if you're looking for some of my takes throughout the the course of the week you can find me there you can find my co-host Corbin Ford on Twitter at Corbin NBA that's C-O-R-B-A-N-N-B-A so uh, he uh, he does a does a good job on Twitter as well he's very active I'm also doing uh, some work as a contributor 
for Rip City Project, which uh, does all things Blazers. So if you're looking for some written content, you can check those websites out. Corbin also does his own pod on the side called NBA Today. Uh, he, uh, he does some, some fun work over there, so, so please, I encourage you to check that out. But uh, thanks so much again for, for listening, and have a great rest of your day. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mobile phone companies say they offer home internet. But if their internet comes from a cell phone network, you should know. It's just phone internet, not home internet. Keep your home up to speed with Cox. Cox internet is faster and has more reliable download speeds than 5G home internet. Cox is the real home internet you're looking for. Based on Cox analysis of UCLA speed test intelligence data, Q3 2022 and Cox serviceable areas, visit cox.com internet for details.